Good morning. Uh, my name is David Thorburn. I'm the director of the MIT Communications Forum, a professor of literature and one of the co-arrangers of this conference. I'd like to welcome you all to the sixth Media in Transition conference. And, and I'd like to begin by, uh, 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 by, by uh, dealing with a couple of what we might think of as essentially technical matters. Uh, first, I'd like to remind all, all, of, all of you conferees that, uh, and partly to apologize for this, today is a murderous long day, as you may have noticed if you look on the schedule. Um, the final plenary starts uh, uh, in the ends at 8 o'clock, uh, I, I believe, if you look on the schedule. Uh, uh, we're sorry about that, but there were so many papers and so many exciting ideas being uh, proposed to us that we felt rather than rather than small in the population of conferees, we would, we, we would work you harder. Uh, so, I, so, so I hope you're ready for a, for a long, but I hope productive and inspiring day. There will be light snacks available for people before the plenary session this evening, be, uh, which if I look on my, let me look on the schedule here. between 6 and 6.30 in the, in the outer lobby here in this building, there'll be light snacks available to sort of keep you going until the end of the final uh, plenary this evening. Um, uh, so I, so I, I hope that'll be enough to, to keep your energy and your, and your strength uh, to adequate levels. Uh, um, another technical matter, uh, the, today's breakout sessions, as we call them, the panel discussions in which all of you will be delivering your papers, uh, will take place in two buildings that are not in this building, and this is the only day in which that will happen. Hereafter, on Saturday and on Sunday, all of the breakout sessions, all of the paper, <coughs> all of the paper deliveries will take place in rooms in this building. It'll be much more convenient. But for today, <coughs> oh, we, we have to move to two buildings, as some of you may know, MIT's buildings appropriately, perhaps, go not by name but by number. <laughs> And then you're going to buildings 56 and building 66, uh, and they are oddly adjacent to each other. Um, there will be, after the first plenary session this, this, that kicks off our conference is concluded this, uh, uh, this afternoon, and you leave to go to those two buildings, there will be uh, aides out in the lobby here to help lead you over to those places. But they're also rather easy to find if you look on the map on the reverse side, on the, on the back of, the, uh, of your program. Another uh, technical matter that's of great importance to us, and I, I uh, think it's, uh, I, I hope everyone will be cooperative about this. Uh, if you look on the program, you will see that in, 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 a, in a few instances, in several, in a number of instances, no moderator is assigned to the uh, in, to particular panels. In many cases, of course, in the majority of cases, moderators are assigned. If you find yourself in a situation in which the three of you presenting do not have a moderator, what we're asking is for one of the presenters to serve as a, as a moderator and you work it out amongst yourselves, have a volunteer uh, take on that duty. There are a, a few cases in which we're forced to do that. Uh, we hope that won't cause problems. We think, in, in fact, it may stimulate discussion in, in some respects. But for a small number of the panels, we need the speakers to volunteer to take on a double role as moderator as well as speaker. Finally, I'd like to, uh, uh, I'd like to uh, 
indicate uh, our, our general thanks for the co-sponsors of this conference. The program in writing and humanistic studies has made a generous contribution to the conference. The, uh, the literature faculty at MIT has made a contribution, and the Polity Press has also contributed. And all three of those uh, uh, groups, uh, to all th- three of those groups, great gratitude from the, uh, from the communications forum and from the uh, program in Comparative Media Studies at MIT. Finally, a very brief word of content from me. I couldn't bear the idea of just making technical remarks to you, even though the the things I have to say I'm sure will have occurred to most of you. But one way of thinking about the fundamental energies that lie behind the this, this conference and, and, and lie behind uh, a great deal of both the exhilaration and the anxiety that has attended uh, the transformation of our culture, that digital uh, transformation of culture that digi- digital technologies seem to promise. Uh, at the heart of that uh, exhilaration and anxiety is, is the problem of speed, of pace, the pace of change. The, 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 uh, one way I think about it is it's, it's, it's as if we live in a universe in which all platforms are unstable. And it seems to me that the question of the instability of platforms, the fact that uh, media uh, uh, form, formats have, have uh, uh, in recent years come to change so quickly within the, bl- within the blink of an eye, uh, creates special problems for our understanding of our cultural heritage. Of course, librarians are already, and archivists are already obsessed by this question. Uh, And I simply want to call attention to the extent to which we're beginning to feel, and one might say that this is at the very heart of this conference, we're beginning to feel, I think, those of us who are concerned with these questions, that we live in a condition of perpetual flux, of perpetual change, in which, in which there is virtually no stability, in which things never slow down. Uh, the, I, I, several people have told me this, although I can't be sure, it's, uh, I, I can't testify on, on, uh, that it's true on, on personal observation, but I'm told that the Chinese character for danger also is the, char- is the character for opportunity, uh, a version of this principle of exhilaration and anxiety coming together when we, when, when we think about both the promise and the, and the uh, 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 dangers uh, or, or, or problems uh, that, 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 that attend this condition of perpetual flux. Uh, and it seems to me that 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 uh, these questions are especially important in a in, in a context in, in cultures. MIT is a principal example of this in cultures which are so future oriented, so welcoming toward innovation and the new that they begin to be that that they begin to lose sight of of, of what I'm suggesting are the dangers or the anxieties that also attend such a condi- condition of perpetual change. So my hope is that in, as this conference proceeds, we'll return again and again to that, to, and I know we, from, the, from the, the titles of many papers and from the uh, uh, proposals and, in fact, the texts of some of the papers that I've read, that this is, is a deep sort of recurring theme in many, of our, in many of our papers. I hope that in our discussions, both in the panel, in the, in the breakout sessions, and in our uh, plenary conversations, we'll keep this problem of speed, of pace, of flux in the forefront. 
One way I think about this, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether, the, whether the balance of exhilaration and anxiety works. I mean, some, in, on some, in some moments, I feel much more anxiety than exhilaration. Uh, and I suspect that many humanists, many, m- many, many scholars like me who began their careers studying what are now thought to be, what, what are now perniciously called dead tree, studying dead tree technologies, uh, uh, are, 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 would share my, my, my sense of anxiety. And I hope that we won't be uneasy about sharing those anxieties, about articulating them clearly, and we won't allow the utopians and the futurists to intimidate us into silence. In any event, it seems to me uh, that one way to sort of crystallize the moment we're in uh, is to uh, imagine that our circumstances are like those of Thomas Pynchon's wonderful comic characters, Mason and Dixon, who at the end of that long and remarkable novel, a testament to the power of those dead tree technologies, Mason and Dixon, the people who did the Mason and Dixon line, finally decide to retire. But they don't want to retire. One of them is an Englishman, one of them is an American. Uh, but they don't want to retire to either of their countries. They've become disen- uh, disenchanted with, with nationalism. And they decide to f- try to find an island in the middle of the Atlantic uh, to which to retire. And, and this is the sentence that seems to me to capture our moment perfectly or at, in a disturbing, although also exhilarating way, uh, signaling both danger and opportunity. It says, "'Tis here on this island in the, in the middle of the Atlantic, Mason and Dixon will retire. Like ferrymen or bridge keepers, ever in a ubiquity of flow, before a ceaseless spectacle of transition." I'm not sure whether we should be excited about that or frightened, maybe both. And I hope we articulate both sides of that, of, of that ambivalence in the papers and plenary conversations we will have for the next couple of days. Thank you very much. So I'm William Uricchio, one of the... Uh, together with Henry Jenkins, uh, directors of Comparative Media Studies, and together with David and Henry, one of the organizers of this conference. Um, it's a pleasure to see so many old friends and here, and I know by the end of the weekend, some new ones as well, um, and especially so many folks from outside the borders of the U.S. Um, I'm not sure if it's the Obama era or what, but I notice a marked increase in transatlantic traffic and Transpacific as well, so welcome indeed, those of you that have... Um, taken the long haul over. I just want to pick up on a word that, uh, that uh, David Thorburn left us with, uh, transition. And indeed, it's a word that's, that's a ripe word, a pregnant word. Um, but it's a word we really embrace here. It's the Media and Transition Conference, after all. Uh, our program, compared to media studies, our academic program, focuses precisely on, uh, it embraces, it, uh, it revels in notions of, uh, of transition. Um, and I just wanted to say, if, just put this in a context. Uh, I went to my first media and transition conference back in 99. It was the first one. It was unnumbered. It was a one-off. David and Henry organized that with the help of the Markle Foundation, the financial help. And it was the program that gave birth to the uh, academic program of comparative media studies. Uh, so that's 10 years ago. Here we are 10 years later. It's been a biannual. We're um, number six. Um, and we're at a real transition moment in, uh, in our culture here. Um, 
for one, I just saw Henry Jenkins walk in, and I want to call, uh, call attention. Henry, of course, was the was a key figure in the, again, together with David at the front end in, in, in imagining this conference and, of course, the program of comparative media studies. I was brought into it in 99, started in 2000, so a bit of a latecomer. Um, but this also marks the end of Henry's stay here at MIT. And the West Coast is in full glee uh, that he's going out to USC to become provost professor there. A really great, a fitting position for Henry, but we're really going to miss him on this end. So it's been a long, it's been a great 10 years that I've been here, 20 years for Henry in terms of MIT. But um, this conference really bears his imprint, and uh, it does all of our imprints, of course, but Henry's uh, in a special way. What's been great for me has been the process of selection, um, going through, being able to first of all see what the patterns of uh, intellectual pursuit are both across the U.S., because there are very interesting regional differences, differences, institutional differences, of course, uh, whether disciplinary or type of university, but, of course, also quite distinct patterns in terms of the papers, the proposals coming in from Asia or various parts of Europe. Um, that's been really fascinating. And each year, you, every two years when we do this exercise, it's been terrific to just get a feel for the specificities, the granularities of, of thought on the topics that we've, uh, we've set out as that year's uh, theme. This year is no different, and as always, it was a very difficult uh, task to, to winnow down the papers to those that we did accept. Um, we err on the side of generosity, um, generous readings of abstracts. Abstracts are, by their nature, a bit fuzzy sometimes, abstract. But, um, but we really are interested in a range of discourses, and I think if you look through the, through the papers that we've accepted, um, you'll see that. A range in terms of levels of academic expertise, really seasoned, you know, highly positioned uh, scholars in the field next to people that are in graduate school or just coming out of graduate school. That mix, it seems to us, is really crucial in terms of not only intergenerational transfer, but um, uh, sparking new ideas, interrogating the old. Um, so anyway, here we are at number six. I hope there are more to come, but the future of the CMS program is... Uh, is very much in transition right now, uh, so that remains to be seen. Um, want to mention one more thing about, uh, I think, a distinguishing feature of this series of conferences that we've had so far, and it speaks to our notion here of storage and transmission this year. Uh, the, C the website that has the material for this year's program, which, by the way, your programs, I don't want to say they're out of date, but the website is really kept up to date, so if you want to know about things like moderators or any any tweaking of the program, the website is still the place to go. But this website is actually quite an interesting repository because all the abstracts, in many cases even the papers that were given over the last five media and transition conferences are there in their full, full glory to be, uh, to be used. And um, I've seen some of them creep back in student papers, even in the, my Dutch life, even in, in Dutch papers people seem to sniff them out. Uh, it's a, repos a wonderful repository of information. So just so you know, don't stop by looking at what happened this year and at your own abstract and, and bio. Dig around in the past. There's some terrific material there, that a lot of which has not been published, but is publicly available. So storage is indeed a very important uh, thing. So a few words of thanks before um, I shut up and turn things over to Peter Walsh. Um, first of all, um, again, thanks to our funders. Uh, it's really... It, We'd like to be able to do this as a free conference and provide a few amenities. We obviously can't do all we'd like, but I think we, we've managed to be able to support one reception with alcohol, and that's no small feat, so uh, for a free conference anyway. 
Um, I wish we could do the loaves and fishes trick. That would, that would be wonderful. Uh, but I'd especially like to thank some of the folks who really helped pull this together. David and Henry, of course, uh, co-organizers who, uh, who make this, this a real pleasure. Um, our graduate students, the graduate students in the CMS program um, are a source of inspiration and labor, um, and it's the best of both worlds on that front. They're terrific. Uh, I want to add to that mix uh, one of our uh, undergraduates, Mandy Holmes, who's headed off to Maastricht uh, next year for her master's program. But she was one of our bachelor's students and been a really active member of our program and uh, helped a lot here. Uh, Andrea uh, Robles, A.J. Liberto have helped a lot with this. And I especially want to thank um, uh, Brad Sewell. I think all of you have been in touch with Brad. Brad, are you in this room somewhere? Do I see you? Brad is wonderful. I mean, every, it just, you know, say it and it happens and it um, makes this job really, really easy. So, Brad, thanks a lot. Uh, Andrew Whitaker, who's helped a lot with our communications throughout. Um, that's it. That's all. Enjoy the conference, and I hope to be able to talk to all of you before the weekend is over. Thanks very much. Okay, and let me just turn the floor over now to Peter Walsh. Uh, Peter has, um, has worked a lot in the fine arts sector, Harvard Museum of Natural, um, of, uh, Natural History, Harvard Art Museums, uh, Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston. He's currently webmaster uh, at the Boston and Andover Newton, sorry, Andover Newton Theological School. He's a culture freak, as far as I can tell, someone who really inhabits this space and does wonderful stuff with it, and he's going to moderate the next panel. So, Peter, I'll turn it over to you, and you can introduce the, uh, the panelists, if you will. Thanks. Thank you, William. I am very delighted to be introducing this uh, plenary panel on history and archives, uh, partly for personal reasons. Um, I have attended all six media and transition conferences, which means I have been coming to these sessions to hear David and William and Henry and all their colleagues speak on an astonishing variety and fascinating variety of media-related topics for more than 10 years. And as uh, David suggested, the time has gone very fast. Uh, so I may not be a walking archive, but I do feel part of the history of, of the conferences. Um, some themes have remained constant through all this time, and David Thorburn used one uh, of them to introduce the last Media and Transition Conference two years ago, and that is the dialogue between history and the present. Uh, this is a theme particularly relevant to the topic of history and archives. Uh, in this media-saturated age, we tend to forget that an archive is what is left of life after everything else has been torn up, thrown out, misplaced, rotted away, uh, sold at yard sales, uh, faded, burned, chewed up by mice, uh, eaten by insects, or buried in the graves of each passing generation. And what we have left over the entire span of human history is actually precious little. Uh, another presence, I believe, in each and every media and transition conference has been the work and reputation of William Shakespeare, and of the life of that towering literary figure, we would know next to nothing if not for the meticulous and largely anonymous work of British archivists. We have none of Shakespeare's manuscripts, none of his letters, no diaries, no appointment books, no ceremonial speeches, 
and besides what is encrypted and quite thoroughly encrypted in his poems and plays, no formal record of his private thoughts on marriage, family, friends, competitors, fame, success, or posterity. Yet an entire scholarly and biographical industry has been built on brief glimpses of the bard preserved in church and government archives. From his baptismal, uh, his baptismal record down to his last will and testament with its infamous second best bed. So I hope that in the not too distant future, the world's Shakespearean scholars will band together and erect a monument to the profession that made their own profession possible, and that is the archivist. Some members of the audience may think that the digital, rev- the digital revolution will save us from e- such Shakespearean ironies over the next 400 years, but I hope that this panel and the rest of the conference will suggest otherwise. Now, a short preview of what we have planned for the next 90 minutes. We have, uh, by consensus, divided the panel into three roughly equal parts. In part one, I will introduce our distinguished panelists and ask each a question, which they will answer briefly and succinctly. The precise definition of brief, brief and succinct shall remain a secret amongst us. But if any panelists should exceed that definition, I shall endeavor by various hand gestures and clearings of the throat to move us on towards the next speaker. Uh, In part two of the panel, the panelists will have a chance to respond to these answers and ask questions of each other. And finally, in part three, which will commence about 1.30 p.m., uh, we will open the floor to questions from you, our audience. Uh, and now for our panelists, whom I will introduce in alphabetical order, and if you could briefly rise while, while I'm introducing you so people know who you are. Uh, first is uh, John Miles Foley, uh, and John Miles Foley is Curator's Professor and William H. Biley Distinguished Professor in the Humanities at the University of Missouri, Columbia, where he teaches in an astonishing variety of departments, including classical studies, English, German, and Russian studies, and anthropology a specialist in comparative oral traditions, particularly ancient Greek, medieval English, and South Slavic. He is the director of Missouri's Center for E-Research and Center for Studies in the Oral Tradition and editor of the journal Oral Tradition. Uh, Despite his uh, reputation as the world's leading authority on comparative oral traditions, Professor Foley has actually written or edited some 20 books, including Homer's Traditional Art and How to Read an Oral Poem. Uh, next in order is Lisa Gettleman uh, on this side of the auditorium. Lisa is on leave uh, as a professor in the Department of Media Studies at Catholic University, where she teaches classes in media history, and she is currently a professor in the Department of History Science, History of Science at Harvard University. She is the author of Always, Alre- Always Already New, Media, History, and the Data of Culture, and Thomas Edison and Modern America, A Brief History with Documents, with Teresa M. Collins, and editor with Jeffrey Pingree of the anthology uh, New Media, 1740 to 1915, one of the first volumes in the Media and Transition series, which is published by MIT Press. Next, we have Rick Prelinger, an archivist, writer, and filmmaker, and founder of the Prelinger Archives, whose collection of 51,000 advertising, educational, and industrial, and amateur films was acquired by the Library of Congress in 2002 
after 20 years of operation. And an operation in this sense included numerous video and archival projects and film showings at universities, media art centers, museums, and occasionally at comedy clubs like The Bottom Line in New York. Uh, Prelinger has partnered with the Internet Archive to make 2,000 films from Prelinger Archives available online for free viewing, downloading, and reuse. He sits on the National Film Preservation Board as representative of the Association of Moving Image Archivists and is board president of the Internet Archive. He is co-founder of the Prelinger Library in San Francisco. Uh, Ann Wolpert is director of MIT Libraries, and oversees virtually the entire process of producing history from archive to history book on the library shelf. She is responsible for MIT's libraries and MIT Press. The MIT libraries consist of five major collections, a number of smaller branch libraries in specialized subject areas, a fee-for-services group, and the Institute Archives. The Institute Archives and Special Collections preserve the historical collections of MIT and the personal papers of many faculty members. The MIT Press publishes about 200 books and more than 40 journals each year in fields related to or reliant upon science and technology. Wolpert also uh, chairs the management board of the MIT Press and the board of directors of Technology Review Incorporated. And finally, to introduce our featured theme, the archive, let me quote from two definitions. Um, the first definition is a traditional one from the Oxford English Dictionary uh, definition of archive, uh, and this goes as follows. One, a place in which public records or other important historical documents are kept, and uh, two, a historical record or document so preserved. And the second definition is an excerpt from the Wikipedia entry, uh, and the Wikipedia entry says, in general, archives consist of records which have been selected for permanent or long-term preservation due to their enduring research value. Archival records are normally unpublished uh, and almost always unique, unlike books or magazines, in which many identical copies exist. This means that archives, the places, are quite distinct from libraries with regard to their functions and organizations although archival collections can often be found within library buildings. And I think you see from that definition that uh, we are in an age where there will be many challenges to the future of archives. Uh, let me move on to the questions. Um, the first question is for John Foley, and the, that question goes as follows. Throughout thousands of years of history and the extinction of many written literatures, the oral tradition has survived and prospered. How has oral composition survived so many changes? And are there parallels between the ancient oral traditions and the emerging internet cultures? John. start by thanking the organizers for all they've done to make such a wonderful conference possible and to thank uh, also the organizers for the invitation to be here. 
I have with me a couple of things, some cards that will give you some of the URLs that I'll have in the PowerPoint. So if you're interested in any of them, it'll save you having to memorize or jot down things. And I also brought with me my monitor for succinctness and brevity here. So I'll try to to keep uh, to the proper moment. I very much like the questions that Peter posed and so put together a very small presentation to try to answer them. I understand oral tradition as a medium and a technology, not just talking, but as a structured language of many different dimensions, which communicates over time. Presumably, it was used by our species from the beginning or soon afterward, whereas writing and other media are very, very recent inventions. Now, I took a page from Carl Sagan's book here and remapped the invention, or floroit actually, of these various media onto a single calendar year to emphasize where they come in the history of our species. So the first scripts then appear December 10th approximately. That is more than 11 twelfths of the way through our existence as a species. The Greek alphabet nine species days later. The Alexandrian library two days after that. Gutenberg's Press, though it wasn't the first, I'm sure a lot of you know, Korea and China beat us to the punch, on December 27th, and the Internet 16 minutes before now. So uh, just to give us some sense of the relative sort of chronology that we're dealing with. But on a contemporary, or from a contemporary perspective, oral tradition still is the most widespread communications technology if we make that estimation per capita and internationally. People disagree on the exact number, of course, but most people would say between 80 and 100 true literatures ever based on mass readership and print technology as qualifying to become and remain a literature, whereas we've had tens of thousands, and that's a minimum sort of estimation of oral traditions from ancient times and pre-times to modern times. One thing that we've come to understand in recent years better than we understood when oral tradition was first being talked about is that it's alive and well in highly literate societies, even our wired West. And also that it's multifunctional, that it does a great many things for societies, many more things than literature is able to do. And I'll get to a little bit of that in a moment. As far as how it survives, how it's managed to survive all of those species days, species weeks, I think it really stems from the power of rule-governed flexibility. In other words, the same power that language enjoys as a general case. And I take this actually from Homer, who describes the bards, the aoidoi of ancient Greece, not as having a good voice or a large memory or a big repertoire, but as knowing the oimai, singular oime, the pathways. So in other words, they don't know things, they know how to get there. They know how to navigate. And counterpose that then to textual items in all their brittleness and fragility. Oral traditions have an ability to morph in support of morphing societies. Praise poetry in South Africa became a very important instrument pre uh, the dissolution of apartheid as did folk drama, to uh, give a sense of what people were thinking about. 
partisan songs uh, during the world, Second World War in the former Yugoslavia use the epic songs to talk about the achievements of the um, partisans. And I just was copy editing a manuscript for a journal on the way up here. A West African group called the Temna make it a habit of telling stories that respond to current events and of modifying those stories as they go in response to whatever the current events are. So it becomes a kind of parable or companion to cultural development. Also, then, the power of navigating through networks as opposed to trekking along the one-way streets of texts. And if our animation cooperates here, what oral tradition and Internet technology really do is to generate a series of choices to choose one of those, which generates another series of choices, and on and on, along the pathways that the person who is performing chooses to navigate. So then the comparison, and that was the last part of Peter's questions, the comparison between oral tradition and internet technology, some homologies, certainly not an exhaustive list, and certainly not, I should add, a superimposition. This is merely meant as a suggestive kind of comparison, that both media or technologies do their work by navigating through networks of potentials rather than securing or owning things. They are involved in emergent, ongoing activities, things that are happening right now. You can't put them down, go get a cup of tea, and resume. If you videotape them, they become artifacts. They both partake of distributed authorship, um, very commonly known in open source software, of course, perhaps not so usually employed talking about oral tradition, but there is no single author of oral traditions. There is a distributed authorship across the society. They both employ special registers or species of language that have a certain um, purpose that they're intended to uh, achieve, and they're performer-driven or participatory, and that is on the audience end of things with oral tradition as well. So what does this homology between OT and IT leverage? I think it leverages new ways to interpret oral tradition. And I have a URL, but if we cooperate here, we've now put our journal online and given it to the world free. Um, all 23 years of it are available, and that allows us also, of course, to uh, include e-companions so that people can experience what's going on as well as read about it. I'll skip through in the interest of time here, but e-editions, taking um, an edition of a self-Slavic oral poem, which exists as a book, but also, I won't play the audio, but the audio exists there, and with the hyperlink page, then, you can, on the same page, learn about the elements of it, including the commentary as you listen to it, and as you go. It resynchronizes the event, or resynchronizes the performance, in other words. And then let me just leave those other two uh, in the interest of time. But the Pathways Project is a book about oral tradition and internet technology that will exist both as a textbook, uh, as a solid artifact, brick and mortar, and as a wiki-driven website. They will have in common that you will be able to navigate either one in any way you wish. There will be suggested pathways, 
but there will also be the option of navigating them as you wish. So finally, I'd close then with saying that I think with the world tradition and internet technology, we have a real possibility of doing something that will change the way we understand oral tradition, that we can make things available to people, we can represent oral traditions in ways that couldn't have been done before by resynchronization, and we have a possibility then of including more people in more ways and fulfilling what the web should do, in my opinion, and that is create more democracy, bring the rest of the world outside the West into it 24 7, 365, without the financial and distributional barriers that book artifacts have caused. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. And our second question is for Lisa Gittleman, uh, and that reads as where they are recorded on stone, whether they are recorded on stone, clay, paper, recording tape, or film, physical archives have since ancient times been a primary source material for recorded history. How might the switch to widely distributed digital media change not just the nature of archives, but history itself? Lisa. Thank you, Peter, um, uh, and thank you to the organizers of the conference. I have to say that I am both honored and uh, rather humbled to be here um, and uh, to be served up such a mighty question. Um, can't help but uh, think it's impossible to answer. Um, how will digital archives change history? L let me just say briefly that uh, digital ar archives will change history and see if I can't work my way around in the very few minutes that I have um, to the question of how. Um, and this is sort of speaking as a person who works uh, on um, texts, on, on textuality. Um, first, I, th I think we can be confident that archives will change historical knowledge um, because of the theories of the archive that lie embedded within common definitions of the term as well as incumbent within vernacular experiences of data. Um, if, as Peter said, the Oxford English Dictionary has it for one that an archive is a place where public records or other important historic documents are kept, that of course begs the question of what important is uh, or who is and who gets to decide. Um, the archive, if I can paraphrase Foucault very lightly, um, might be seen as less of a, a collection of documents, say, um, and more as a system governing statements. Um, that is, while documents possess meanings, systems produce as well as delimit knowledge, uh, most notably knowledge about the past. Um, so change systems and you change history. 
Um, but that's just theory um, you might protest and may have little to do with the practicalities of archival management, archival research, or the persistence of culture. Um, one could argue, as Anne Laura Stoller puts it, that the archive of historians, not to mention archivists, and the archive for cultural theorists uh, have been wholly different analytic objects. Um, put in contact, perhaps, by the new cultural history, um, and now, I think, by our shared and emerging knowledge of digital storage technology. Um, open a Gmail account and you're urged to archive, don't delete. Um, that's a practical directive, yes, but it also accordingly begs at least an ad hoc theory of the archive. Um, and it probably begs it differently than other online resources like Wikipedia or something else. Um, indeed, we might hypothesize um, that, to some extent, new media have always uh, prompted new archival sensibilities, fleeting situations of semi-self-consciousness, um, spasms of epistemic anxiety, Stoller might put it, about the questions that attend preservation and access, storage and transmission, um, the who, the what, the how. Um, in 1819, just to give you a very brief example, the well-known pedagogue and reformer Joseph Lancaster tried to promote to Americans a great coordinated system of national, state, and college museums to be filled up with user-generated content, not the way he put it, um, uh, selected by private patriotic individuals and then sent in free of charge. Um, he was thinking primarily of natural history specimens, soils, minerals, plants, but the medium of lithography was new at the time, so he included this final last twist. Um, he urged Americans to send in what he called outlines or rough sketches of scenery from nature. Once lithographed and distributed to various mirror sites, they might form a vast visual data bank of, vis uh, of information so that any young artist might thus have access to all the beauties of scenery which natural landscapes in outline uh, can furnish. Um, it was a completely insane plan, needless to say, in this and other features, um, but one which strikes me as particularly apposite in the present context, uh, both because I discovered it online uh, in the incredible archive of Americana, uh, and because it imagines um, such an incredible, well, archive of Americana. Um, the late literary historian Jay Fliegelman uh, likened today's archive of Americana to an MRI of early America, um, noting that the slightest browsing provides a provocation to original thought. Um, he, cele he celebrated full-text searches in particular because they seemed to him inherently interdisciplinary. Um, he said, even uh, as users come to appreciate um, the dialectical character of individual words and phrases, um, text searching also seems beyond its interdisciplinarity to be turning everybody into an English major. Uh, well, maybe not everyone uh, in this instance precisely. The Archive of Americana is proprietary, so you need to be part of a subscriber group to get access to it. Um, Joseph Lancaster would not approve, and nor do I. Um, Fliegelman's image of the MRI, though, uh, captures some of the thrill of seeing the historical record uh, in such a new way and seeing so much more of it. Uh, a much more common metaphor is that of data mining, uh, and the image of the monocular light um, on the miner's helmet always strikes me as a good provocation to be aware of the potential limitations of digital archives amid the huge bonanza that they truly represent. Um, most obviously, even as online searching turns us all into wordsmiths of a very particular sort, um, it makes the emerging archive as system one that depends almost wholly on the alphanumeric character of objects and the metadata that describe them. 
Um, so it's a hugely powerful system. But when I think back to the historical research that I used to do uh, concerning Thomas Edison's laboratory notebooks and drawings, it occurs to me both, uh, how poorly those documents, even when digitized, reflect the light from my helmet, um, trained as it is on alphanumeric character strings. Um, what saves me in that instance, I think, uh, is partly the things I know already and partly the things I can intuit about provenance, um, how the documents came to be created, preserved, organized, indexed, uh, and digitized. Um, indeed, I guess this is the broader point that I'm trying to work my way toward and the reason why I picked this one image as my scenery today. Um, the light from my helmet seems particularly bad at picking out labor. Um, all but absent from the digital archive, if I can risk a generalization, um, is the labor that produced it. So that you can search, I mean, just anyone can search Google Books uh, for words, um, but it's pretty tricky to search Google Books for fingers. Um, true, uh, maybe all archives, not just digital ones, uh, work to efface or to disavow the labors of their creation. Um, but digital archives uh, entail whole new forms of labor. I'm thinking of all of the labor of digitization and digital production, uh, imaging, tagging, creating standards, architecture, coding, um, that lie behind the institutional or legacy archives, yes, but also the related labors uh, that enable and, and in a sense circumscribe the massively distributed labors which attend user-generated data troves. Um, I'm completely fascinated uh, by the ways these labors collectively unsettle the intuitive character of provenance. The user's low-level readerly sensibility that constantly jury-rigs a feel uh, and then re-jury-rigs the feel uh, for how an archival document came into the situation of its present intelligibility. Um, that's all study, still pretty abstract, I know, um, but let me uh, make a little bit more concrete and finish. Um, when I'm asked to talk, about, uh, talk to students about the challenges of historicizing digital objects, I usually just sort of flash three web pages. Um, a web page uh, uh, sort of stored in the Internet Archives, uh, ar in the Internet Archive and ac accessed through the Wayback Machine, um, the same web page as it appears today, um, and then the same web page as it appears today, but using a browser emulator. Um, so that you see it as if it was on a Netscape Navigator. Um, the Historian's Archive, the Cultural Theorist's Archive, and the Everyday Internet User's Archive um, have come newly into contact with one another in exciting ways. Um, and I guess I tend to be very optimistic, but not utopian uh, at this point, um, that we have a real opportunity. We have a, a challenge. Um, we have a responsibility, in a sense, um, as media uh, studies uh, um, mavens, uh, as information professionals, as educators, um, we have this opportunity or responsibility um, that if everybody can be an English major somehow in some way, maybe now everybody could be a history major too, um, which is an argument for um, a certain self-consciousness as well as for well-designed tools and platforms. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, our third question is for Rick Prowlinger, who I believe will also uh, explain the small mystery that you found at your seat. Um, and the question is, in the past, archives have primarily served a small audience, have served small audiences of professional historians and private enthusiasts. As digitization forces archives from the cultural margins to the, uh, towards the center and onto the internet, what 
must museum, what must archive managers do to serve new, vastly expanded audiences? Rick. So thanks. Um, do I need to do anything? No. Um, so just to put your party favor in a little bit of, of context, um, I like to think of the coin as an object that's both durable and portable, and it evokes three thoughts that I think are, are germane to this discussion. The first is permanence. Um, why don't we do more work in metal? Complexity scales up um, how much we desire to preserve, and at the same time, techno technology is scaling up the amount that we can actually save. But the price of the scaling up is fragility. We've not put significant effort into storage media that we know will endure. This could, of course, be otherwise. Um, second, to think beyond the walls of the traditional archives. There are many kinds of repositories, and um, the coin to me suggests one sort, the geographer uh, J.B. Jackson said, landscape is history made visible. And in a similar vein, I think of Anne Claiborne, who is the geologist in the excellent Mars Trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson, essential reading. Um, she advocated preserving the red planet in a pristine state because even though it was completely dead, it was free of biota, its environment constituted an unduplicated and readable record of its geological evolution. And then third is, is value. Um, Value is a covert presence in most of our discussions of archives and history. Um, but how can we actually value archives and memory? Value is arbitrary, provisional, and impermanent, and, and hence value me as you please. Um, so our own experience, my own experience, tells us that archives are culturally emergent. You could say it's a horrible term that they're going retail. At one time, their users were mostly uh, intermediaries, like many of you, who use archival records to produce products such as scholarly books, uh, TV shows, exhibits. But now this group is outnumbered by ordinary people who directly interrogate archives for materials to use in their own projects. And this is a parallel disintermediation with what we see happening with citizen science, with citizen journalism, with user-generated production. Um, that said, this is a peculiar moment for archives. You know, they're frozen in place by, by historic legacies, by outdated practices, rituals, as Green and Meisner call them, and by scarcity-induced constraints. There's a growing disconnect between the kind of access that people expect from archives, especially in a... Uh, you know, a, an always-on web era, and what archives are actually able to ar offer. Archives are not like public libraries. Uh, access is not their core mission. And yet, at the same time, the implicit social contract between archives, users, and societies is defined above all by access. So while preservation may be archives' reason for being, access is their connection with the world. People now expect uh, universal and continuous access to cultural materials. And if established repositories don't deliver, they're rooting around them. And this is putting archives in a very dangerous and vulnerable place. If they, we, function as obstacles to access rather than uh, enablers of access, the social and cultural consensus that supports us and keeps archives open is likely to fail. The rapid rise of, of YouTube is, is you know, foregrounding this problem, and I think there's going to be some 
I'm, the abstract suggests that there's going to be some very interesting work on YouTube presented at this conference. YouTube is not an archive, but it looks a lot like one to most people, and it's created a new level of public expectation of what a moving image archive should be, and legacy archives that play by all the rules and do the right thing, whatever the right thing may be, aren't going to be able to compete with its attributes. So there's some, some possibilities for change. The classical perception was that the archive is the end point of the cultural distribution cycle, right? The place where documents go to molder and die. But what if we instead consider the archive as a point of departure, as a place, as the originating point for historical intervention? In that way, we suddenly gain a new toolbox of opportunities uh, for mainstreaming history and for re-anchoring it in the public sphere. Um, if in order for archives to fully function as cultural producers, archivists need to re-engineer their practices. This is key. One interesting strategy among a, a whole suite of strategies is for archives and libraries as well uh, to reconceive themselves as, repo rather, as repositories rather than workshops. So in such a scheme, um, we're actually going through this at our, our library in San Francisco. The collection stops being the sole focus. The library rather turns into a place, the library of the archives as well actually, becomes a place of transaction where users, uh, staff, and the collection intersect and interact with one another. It's a movement from um, being a host of solitary research spaces into a venue for shifting ephemeral collaborative working environments. I am waiting, for example, for... Um, for uh, digital libraries where there's actually a there there where you can come to have collaborative terminals where people can work with documents on tables and so on. Um, this is a very important uh, person who I've just become aware of. Are any of you knowledgeable about Robert Binkley? He's not a well-known character. He's worth reading. Um, the future of most cultural repositories right now is also intimately tied to decentralization and to do-it-yourself culture. Um, where's innovation happening? It's largely, in my world, the moving image world, happening in regional collections and non-traditional and outsider repositories and in personal uh, archival institutions. Binkley predicted in 1935 that members of the public, whom we might call citizen archivists, are stepping in where institutions couldn't tread. It's, the, uh, again, the issue of innovation happening at the periphery and infusing the center. In my field, uh, the action is around home movie day. News ide new ideas are not coming out of the National Archives. So um, for a long time, there's going to be a lot to say about different record, different ways to present, and different ways to contextualize archival records. But as far as I'm concerned, the question of whether to digitize or not to digitize the cultural heritage and make it universally accessible is moot. It's expected of us, and it's got to happen. What we don't know is who will pay, which brings us to the question of enclosure. I would be very regretful if this discussion turned into you know, yet another, either a, a love fest or a slam job on Google. But what is certainly true is that monetization and commercial partnerships are forcing massive changes on institutions that most of the time have little say in the process. In general, I think monetization is a false promise for almost all archives. We see it a lot in my field because people think as the 
comedian Brutus Peck once said to me, film is gold, kid. Um, a lot of people think that there's great value embedded in, in uh, especially rich media archives. And archives that are desperately in need of funds are tempted to sign agreements that uh, enclose their collections more or less. Um, as we develop a matrix into which um, previously marginal and ephemeral records fit, you know, you could think of Flickr, you could think of geotagged photos and Google Earth, you could think of geotagged videos on YouTube, and of course the orphaned literary works uh, within Google Book Search. When you begin to develop a matrix for fairly marginal records to fit, the records become immediately more pertinent and usable, usable, but at the same time they start to morph into assets that come under increased control. They're harder to, to unbundle back out. So we need to be active about this and not simply reactive. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Rick. Um, the final question is for Anne Walpert, and it came out of a conversation we had about certain uh, real-world challenges of putting together archives in the digital age. Um, and the question is, um, an archive once, met, once meant physical documents kept in a specific place, as our definitions uh, uh, elucidated, often protected and managed by government or institutional officials. Given that 21st century digital documents cannot be handled or authenticated by scholars, can easily be altered, forged, or erased, are recorded in media controlled by corporate planned obsolescence, and are not located in physical space at all, is an archive of digital archives still an archive? And Thank you, Peter. And don't you just love those questions where you can say the answer is it depends. <laughs> and, and that is the answer, in fact. Um, back in the days when all archives were tangible, even though you might have needed special equipment to use something that was in the archives, think here, those of you who have gray hair, about Super 8 film or 8-track tapes, um, in fact, the question of what constituted a bona fide archival material was substantially less complicated than it is today for all the reasons that Peter just articulated. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, uh, issues of provenance, that is to say, where did a particular item originate and what was its path to the place where it currently resides, Authenticity, which is what can you say about how authentic the version of something is that you're looking at is. Can you, can you assert in some way that it is an original? These were very important aspects of um, identifying traditional archival material, and they remain important today. Um, but in fact, to Peter's point, earlier point about the fact that the principal threats to uh, tangible archival material were rodents, fire, flood, uh, insects, the kinds of things that would physically damage or remove an item, including human negligence, uh, were the principal threats to the persistence of archival material. In the digital world, however, issues of provenance, authenticity, 
access conditions, who gets to play with the digital bits, and the stewardship responsibility for these materials um, is absolutely and utterly critical to their integrity and persistence. In the physical world, we can always remember those stories about the maps that were razored out of a work or the documents that got stuffed into a sock. But in fact, stewardship responsibility in the digital environment um, is, is essential. Um, persistence in the digital world does not happen by luck. It happens by intentional action and explicit investment. Uh, the odds that bits will survive in a shoebox in the attic are pretty small. So when we think about the MIT archives, which is an institutional archive, and there are many institutional archives in the world, um, we have our challenges, certainly. Um, but when Charles Fest, who was president of MIT between 1990 and 2004, walked into the Institute archives and plopped his hard drive down on the desk, um, it may have caused the archivists' hearts to palpitate, and they may have breathed briefly into a paper bag, um, but they could at least say to themselves, okay, I know where there are technical people who live around here. I know where the resource might come from to keep this persistently available over time. We can handle this. Um, likewise, when we discovered uh, an enormous uh, reservoir of deteriorating magnetic media in one of the basements here at MIT, um, we could figure out how to preserve these things, and we had access to people and resources to make it possible. And when the DSpace Institutional Repository ingests open courseware courses, we can be pretty sure that we can keep these things available for as long as MIT needs them, or the world needs them to be available. Now, mind you, this is not perfect. MIT's website is um, persistently cared for by the Internet Archive Wayback Machine. And not all the pages are there, but it's a, it's a very interesting thing to consider how you can deploy institutional assets and talent at a level to make works available. Of a greater concern for archives, I think, uh, although clearly the ability to respond to this environment is a function of how much money you have, uh, of greater concern is the yawning gap that's emerging between institutional archives and records, which are kept for a business purpose or for explicit cultural reasons, and those archives that the Society of American Archivists call the byproduct of normal human activities. It is these byproducts of uh, normal human activities that become the accidental or incidental archives that create the flavor, the richness, the um, texture of life at a point in time. MIT's record of its existence um, is, of course, documented in the formal reports of the president that go back to the beginning of the institution's history. But its real texture and flavor, the experience of what it meant to have and MIT for many years is reflected in archives such as this photograph from 1935 of the MIT Drama Club performing a, a play called Under the Gaslights. And who knew that the winsome damsel on one side would one day be the president's wife? Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> so having this kind of documentation in addition to the formal records of the Institute um, is incredibly important, and it's very much a function of um, the durability of the physical medium and how that came forward. So I don't know how your photographs are kept, but this is um, a, the latest batch of photographs that I got from my daughter-in-law. And if you think this is going to be available in 74 years, you probably should have your head examined. Because um, uh, who among us has uh, photographs of the richness and depth of those boxes, those big boxes of photographs that we inherited from our parents? When my kids are cleaning out my attic 30 years from now, they're going to find that shoebox with a bunch of camera cards in it. And they're going to say, huh, I wonder what camera this was from. And it's going to get pitched out. But they're going to find the box of family photographs that date from the 1800s. Likewise, this is also in MIT's Institute Archives. It's a pretty bad visual image of the diary that Ellen Swallow Richards kept when she was a student at Vassar. Ellen Swallow Richards was the first woman to get a degree from MIT. This particular diary is 139 years old. I bet if you keep a diary, you keep it on Facebook. Do you think that, or maybe, or worse yet, Twitter, right? So do you think that, do you think that your diary is going to be available um, 100 years from now? Likewise, this is a very interesting letter that was written by the governor of Massachusetts to William Barton Rogers, the first president of MIT, uh, 148 years ago. You can see that the quality of his handwriting is about as good as ours today. Um, but in fact, it's a personal plea from the governor of Massachusetts for William Barton Rogers to come and talk to a committee that was going to fund the start of MIT as an institution. And it's a plea that says, please don't sell any, send anybody else. You've got to come yourself, and you've got to talk, and don't bring anybody with you, because you're the most articulate person in the whole world on this, and I want you here. And it was a personal note. Compare that um, to the email that documents your own existence uh, and how impermanent and uh, impersonal this medium is. And will it be here? 100 years from now. Likewise, this is a page from a scrapbook that was kept by an MIT alumnus when he and his wife went to Japan in 1929. Um, it, uh, he represented the American Society of Civil Engineering at the World Engineering Congress in Tokyo. And he and his wife kept this scrapbook of all of the experiences and photographs and postcards that they had. Um, my niece, on the other hand, is traveling around the world and keeping a travel blog on a blog. This is not her blog, because when she stopped paying for access to the blog site she was using, her blog disappeared. So two years' worth of a wonderful blog and all of the photographs is gone because she, she couldn't handle it. So um, I, the point I think I want to leave you with is that, sure, institutions can pull up their socks and address the digital environment from the standpoint of their own records. It won't be easy, and things will be lost, and uh, over time we'll learn how to collaborate together to make that happen. 
But in fact, the real richness and flavor of what it means to live in the 21st century and in the digital age is being recorded in media that are so ephemera that we really run the serious risk of losing all of the flavor and texture and richness of these experiences because they are recorded in media that are ephemeral. So if you would like to make sure that your work gets passed down to your children and grandchildren, uh, and you would like to contribute your work to history, you've got to figure out how to keep it so that you can hand it off to someone when the time comes to incorporate it in an archive. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Um, I'm reminded hearing your talk about I got a lot of auctions, and there used to be something called ephemera, which was on paper. Um, we're on to the ephemera of ephemera now. Um, we're now moving into the second part of the uh, panel, and at this point I'll ask the panelists to take their seats up front um, and to see if they have questions for each other, reactions, um, other comments on the uh, presentation so far. And at the end of this part, we will open it to you our audience. I feel very far away from the action here. Anybody? Yes, Lisa. I, I have a question, if I may. Um, uh, I guess there's a question to all panelists, but it strikes me that, that what I'm would really like to hear either from panelists or from the audience when we get there is um, what strategies or tactics you might uh, envision to, if you like, inoculate uh, what what Rick is calling the retail archives um, with a sense of the datedness of cultural production and, and the flip side of datedness, um, the ephemerality um, that uh, Anne was talking about. Rick? Rick? <laughs> Inoculate. Um, Inoculate digital archives with a sense of that. Yeah, just to give, you know, sort of, uh, you know, what can we do so that users uh, are uh, encouraged um, or have an enhanced sensibility of the datedness of cultural production, um, of things like migration, emulation, the datedness of, you know, preservation in the digital realm, and the, and the flip side of that, you know, that if things are dated, that means they also could disappear. Yeah, so that's actually a, quite a complex question, and it's a, it, 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 it almost begs a manifesto in a way. I think one of the issues, um, these, a lot of these issues are highly generationalized, and people that are, are doing um, production in... Uh, intellectual, cultural production in fragile forms of media tend to be younger. They're certainly producing the bulk of it. And um, I would argue that uh, the historical consciousness has become generationalized um, so that any sense of ephemerality and of even time passing in a conscious way, it's not put forward to young people. For example, uh, historical television, you know, is made for a demographic of like 45 plus, usually male. Look at, at, at public TV. There's no historical television that's aimed at uh, so-called uh, millennials or younger, except for, you know, some of the nostalgia shows on VH1, and those aren't even really. Um, and so there's, we are for a lot of reasons, the culture puts forth a very sort of present-oriented perspective. And, you know, I think that's 
one way to do it that's a bit roundabout. The second way is to try to figure out a way to place a higher value on ephemera. Um, and this is... This has always been an issue. If you look at the, when Universal Studios gave uh, the Universal Newsreel to the American people, to the National Archives in 1977, NARA developed a set of selection criteria for what they were going to keep. This was the only newsreel that was put into the public domain. And it's a great document to read today. It says, retain all public officials, all U.S. international relations, speeches and travels of the president. And it said, discard, um, you know, uh, diaper derbies, Levittown, pop culture stuff. And of course, this is what everybody wants to see now. And it, basically, you really can't make a judgment. So I, I think we have to figure out a way to sort of almost institutionally place a higher value on ephemeral utterances, like you were pointing out in paper. Okay. I, I, a, I think it's a very interesting question, because it, it seems to me, just as a personal observation, um, that things that are plentiful tend to be undervalued. And um, I talk to uh, my children and grandchildren, and they're awash in photographs. They, every camera card holds 150 photographs or 2,000 photographs. I mean, it's just unbelievable how many photographs they have. And the number of photographs they have becomes a problem rather than something that they're anxious to deal with. And I don't know about you, but I remember my first brownie camera, and I remember how much film cost, and I remember <laughs> counting each photograph that I could get out of a strip of film and how valuable they were and putting them in a scrapbook because they were rare and expensive. But things that go into digital formats are cheap and plentiful, and we, uh, and we don't value them the way we value. They become ephemera by their multitudinousness, and we don't value them the way we value things that are scarce. So uh, how, how to think about, um, and, and we don't teach history so much anymore. Um, I, I often uh, am shocked when I watch public television programs on the history of the United States, and they're talking about the 60s. I think, this is not, that is not history. <laughs> I was alive then. That can't possibly be history. What are you talking about, right? So um, th there's, there's some relationship, I think, between uh, the popular culture and a sense of um, plentifulness and throwawayfulness and, you know, the star that was hot today isn't, isn't hot tomorrow and the dominance of po popular culture as uh, a powerful theme in our society uh, in combination with the number of, sheer number of things that you can get in digital formats um, has skewed the way we think about what's worth keeping. Uh, and, and, it, and we're also not teaching history in high school the way we used to teach history. So um, I, I just think it's a very interesting social um, phenomenon. It's not so much about the technology as it is about the way we think about our lives. Uh, coming from the perspective that I do, I'm probably the odd person out on this panel. Uh, for me, ephemerality is largely in the eye of the beholder. And the idea that one thing, something needs to be fixed, an idea needs to be static, it needs to be unsystemic and unchangeable is not something that's been with us always and not something that we're seeing now is very prominent anymore. 
um, oral traditions do their work by adapting, not adapting willy-nilly, no more than we can speak English by deciding to change the endings of the verbs on our own, but giving flexibility for the kind of power that fixity doesn't allow, a rule-governed kind of flexibility. And we see this even in the formulation of history. Historiographers are now beginning to study, have been studying for a while, Lewis Mink 20 years ago was studying this, the idea that when one portrays an era of history, whether it's the Roman Empire, the Civil War, whatever it might be, one uses a story pattern, very often derived from folk tales or other oral traditions of rise and fall or the great individual or this or that in order to portray um, items that are gathered from archives or other sources and to put them into the form of a story that is then receivable by people who have a, a competence, a repertoire in that kind of receiving, reception of, of stories. None of those histories is final, fixed, and static, else there wouldn't be any need for another edition of any book, never mind another book. So I think it would be helpful in thinking about datedness to think about media other than the media that prize fixity and unchangeability above everything else and that use, in fact, rule-governed flexibility to negotiate um, on a cultural and individual basis language-wise, dialect-wise, idiolect-wise, how reality is to be construed and constantly reconstrued. I mean, in a way to put, maybe to try to put you two together, um, I often have this contradictory idea that we shouldn't worry so much about what gets destroyed, what doesn't get saved. Um, you know, on the one hand, of course, destruction of Heritage is a weapon of, of war. It can be a weapon of, uh, you know, of domination uh, by one group against another. But on the other hand, history is so much about desire. Um, and it's quite often about desire for what we don't know, for the evidence that isn't immediately accessible. You know, it's about the search. And so many of the emergent histories of the last several generations um, have been, uh, the work in, in those histories has been motivated by absence and by omission and by mystery. You know, think of African-American history. Think of labor history as what uh, Lisa was talking about, the effaced traces of labor throughout history. And when you think that way, um, it makes me a little bit less worried about keeping everything. And, of course, many archivists are down with that idea, too, because they believe that their job is to uh, appraise and select. I have a follow-up question, I think, for John, and it's around oral histories and the resurgent interest in oral history. Uh, um, oral histories, whether they're just uh, audio or whether they include video capture as well um, are highly prized uh, because they are so much more texturally rich uh, than uh, uh, the same information that's written on a piece of paper. Um, but they're static. So to what extent do you think oral histories play into the oral tradition, you, you know, there's, so there's some kind of hybrid, right, between... Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I think people do separate out the fields a little bit of oral history from, from oral tradition, and I'm more in the oral tradition end of things, but let me say something in regard to the experience I had with an oral history archive. 
and that was in South Africa very soon after the dissolution of apartheid at the University of the Western Cape. Our university had an agreement. And they decided to start a people's history project because, as you might expect in the former regime, there was only one kind of history told and only one small segment, about 3% of the people. So what came out in that, of course, was that there were virtually no documents besides photographs, a few other things, but not a lot of official government things, at least weren't released. So it was a matter of gathering history orally and of doing so not once and then filing it, but of doing it on a continuous basis through the generations, going back to the same person over and over again, and seeing the constellation of stars that was there rather than just hip-hopping from one to another as the single route for understanding what was going on. And what a, what a couple of people on the panel said about using the archive as a place for transaction or a platform, you know, that rings very true in regard to that particular event. Uh, Yes, I think that the, the audio and video records would be an improvement or, let's say, an adjunct to what could be written down on paper. But even better is the continuing project, both of gathering material and continuous interpretation of material, rather than settling for an end point. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'll just try and add to that, that I think that one of the burdens of uh, thinking about um, media that do... Um, uh, fix um, or that tend to fix uh, is keeping that um, competency itself in historical perspective. In other words, to understand that fixity itself has changed over time, not just you know because media change uh, or as media change uh, and in relation to media change, um, uh, but um, you know that that our understanding certainly of, of print media um, and its storage capabilities are incredibly nuanced uh, and and need to be. Hist continually rehistoricized. I mean, that's a project um, that's ongoing. Um, so, I, you know, I'm very much in sympathy, really, uh, uh, of pointing to the um, the dichotomy that the conference is, is sort of aimed at, storage and transmission, and to see the dynamic between those values uh, across time and has to historicize that um, while still, you know, sort of paying attention to both, both sides as very active, dynamic, ongoing um, processes. So I'm, I'm mindful of uh, uh, some recent work that's being done in management science around the importance of understanding not just the superficial aspects of uh, organizational structure and effectiveness, but the essential contributions that culture and traditions and the invisible web of those oral relationships and uh, uh, oral traditions that are handed down within companies make. I mean, is, it, how do you think about uh, the... Uh, we're, we've been talking mostly about oral traditions in the sense of culture, but are there oral traditions in other dimensions of human endeavor in addition to culture? Uh, I, I think absolutely so, and it, it's really good you should bring it up because one of the one of the difficult points in the history of the study of oral tradition has been this false binary that people created in the beginning in order to create thinking space for something other than texts. They um, segregated uh, anything oral from anything not oral. And yes, absolutely, you have these things circulating through companies. You have um, 
at the administrative level, let's say. And then also people have done work on occupational folklore among the people who are working in that particular institution, let's say. And not only what they have to say in interviews about what they do, but what forms of songs or tales or whatever else might circulate to reflect their anxieties, to talk about how their father or mother worked in this particular place, and now they're doing this as well. And in other words, kind of twittering their whole experience uh, through, through, these, uh, through these forms. So, yeah, absolutely so. In fact, almost everywhere you look, and I was speaking to someone just before we began saying that some of the best informants worldwide about oral traditions are academics who are also performers. We didn't used to think that was possible, but now it's very clear it is. So how should people like Rick and me think about that if we're maintaining archives? So the minute the oral tradition gets set down in some kind of tangible form, it's not oral tradition anymore. <laughs> no, but it's better than not having it. I mean, we, uh, of course you can't, well, somebody tried, didn't they, to uh, hold Proteus and keep him captive, but it didn't work out too well. Uh, but you can continue to observe Proteus, hopefully with many sets of eyes and with as many different technologies and therefore media perspectives as you can imagine, and therefore asymptotically approached uh, uh, an appreciation of Proteus, even if you can't capture him. So I, I think the stake is to, to, and many people have done this, is to make a film or to make a text and so forth and then consider the job done. Yeah, and you know, maybe two quick uh, stabs at that. Um, a lot of records make most sense in the immediate context. Uh, home movies, which I equate very much to oral tradition, personal authorship rather than corporate or group authorship made to be shown in a small group, made to, 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 to carry on, let's say, family or group traditions. They work best when you show them, we bring them back into that community and you re-perform them in a way. You give them another another iteration, and then they become, uh, you know, that's another kind of historical intervention. And um, it, it, I think really that's, that's probably key most of all, is what community do these records relate to, and in what sense are they the most, uh, the most useful? We don't really know that yet. You know, people, people argue that, uh, you know, social networking communities and networks of gamers and the various affinity groups that we've seen uh, coalesce within the last 15 or 20 years. These, these forms of community are so new and transient and tenuous, it's really, really hard to you know, predict whether it's going to be the campfire or the distributed uh, you know, galactic network. And um, as a result, I, just, I think we have to keep our eyes open and try to be able to emulate the experience of serving these up and the experience of the reception experience, even if we can't keep all the data. Maybe I could uh, pose a question to all three. It's a really open-ended kind of question, but it's, it's something I think I know I'm interested in. I think a lot of people are. And it's the issue of access, uh, which came up, I think, in, in everyone's uh, talk what we can do at every different kind of level to increase or promote or grease the wheels or whatever metaphor you want to use to, to get more people in play and to, to bring barriers down, whether that intervention be institutional, personal, group-based, um, NGO-based, whatever it might be. Uh, are there things that, that we can do in your various um, 
situations to increase access. I, I think it's a core issue for us. So. <laughs> well, well, I would say that the, the advent of uh, digitization has been um, a real, present a real opportunity to institutional archives because it can fulfill two important purposes. One is to make the material more accessible, but the other is to think of it as a kind of a preservation strategy. So if you can digitize a rare or unusual work and get it up on the internet so that others can see it and use it, you have not only uh, fulfilled your obligation as an archive, but you've essentially probably reduced the number of times that someone will come in and handle it physically. So there are a lot of folks who handle rare and fragile materials who really look to digitization as a preservation strategy where you can deal with a certain percentage of the traffic in a fragile object by putting a surrogate up on the web uh, or whatever other mechanism you want and thereby reducing the wear and tear on the object itself. Because most archivists, I mean, they are historians. You scratch an archivist and there's a historian. And um, they're eager and anxious to share the treasures that they host and steward. So I think it's, um, it's really a nice opportunity. Of course, it costs money to do these things, and who was it that addressed monetization and the challenges associated with that, Peter, maybe? But um, I think for many archivists, the, the challenge rests in the interstices between what it costs to digitize these works to a high-quality standard and keep them available for serious researchers. Um, if someone comes along and offers you money to do that, you might be eager to take it, but then uh, where does the money flow from that, and does any of it loop back to the people who um, uh, stewarded the, the original archive and kept it available and so on? Yeah, I would just uh, sort of second that. I'm particularly interested in the uh, in access to scholarly resources, which you would think, since you know we're not in this business, many of us or all of us maybe to make money, um, would, wouldn't be such a hot issue. But um, uh, you know, I work uh, my 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 regular job at Catholic University, work for an institution that doesn't have access to scholarly resources, and here come to find out this year, there's an amazing world out there um, because Harvard subscribes to everything um, and is engaged, you know, as a partner with Google Books. So, you know, it's it really has been eye-opening um, uh, in more ways than one. But um, uh, I think that, that we do need to make um, the political economy, the, the various uh, monetization models in play um, with regard to scholarly access, um, uh, a key, you know, focus to, to understand what the alternatives are. Um, I think particularly of, uh, you know, the resource that we could have in some of the big foundations who have supported um, archival scholarly resources in the humanities, um, which is my sort of intellectual domain. Um, and, and even the uh, foundations have adopted a kind of corporate mindset and a corporate model in many cases rather than a nonprofit um, model for uh, these online resources. I'm thinking in particular of, you know, things like JSTOR that, that cost gigups of money because the foundations have um, corporate headquarters, you know, on Madison Avenue and things like that. There's no, you know, if, the, if there's scholarly resources, I think we need to uh, figure out ways not only to know what's going on, but to intervene to make sure that openness um, uh, is there. I mean, I'd, I'd back up 
both of these statements as the as the owner of a private moving image archives that went to LC, but it's still in dead storage and inaccessible there. Um, I really come to believe that we exist to be consumed and we are fulfilled through being consumed. You know, when we partnered with the Internet Archive, when Brewster decided to subsidize the cost of digitizing the first 2,000 films, which was incredibly low, we had no idea was this, this is very suspect in some circles, the notion of build a resource and they will come, because it's an unstructured, you know, uh, kind of... Um, it's a behavior that anticipates use without really being able to quantify it. It's not needs-based, you know. Uh, and, you know, 2,000 extremely obscure films. The most famous one is Duck and Cover, and then it goes down, you know. <laughs> Things expand when heated. The parade of invertebrates, you know. I don't, I'm, but, uh, but, you know, we've had, an, uh, we've had probably 30 million downloads. It's impossible to count anymore as they propagate through the P2P networks and through the, the, the YouTubes and everything else. What we do know is that some tens of thousands of derivative works have been made and the material propagates. And then there's all these other things like we make twice as much money because the increased visibility results in a lot of licensing income, and in the same way, uh, you know, the library, we have a thousand people a year coming to look at obscure books. There's incredible demand, and, and as a result, I've, I now believe in this. Build it and they will come, um, and you can't imagine how life-changing it is to become a public, in the same way that a public intellectual may reach an audience that's much larger than a non-public intellectual, an archivist that points out to the public and pushes materials out. It's tremendously life-changing in almost all good ways. I, I hate to break into the discussion, but I do want to open the floor to the audience for the third part of our uh, panel today. Um, there is a protocol for asking questions of the panelists. We have microphones on each side of the, uh, of the auditorium, and we would like people to line up and uh, speak in order. I will recognize one side and then the next side and so on uh, until uh, time to close. Um, and we also ask that each speaker uh, begin his question by identifying uh, himself or herself uh, so that we have it for the, the historical record and the archive of this panel. Um, so we have a questioner on, the, on uh, my right, your left. I'm Robert Logan uh, from Ontario, Toronto. And my question is as follows. Um, I'd like to combine John's idea of pathways with Anne's concern about digital uh, media disappearing by suggesting that pathways of media are just as important as pathways of content. So people have talked about uh, how digital media have saved non-digital media. I think we need to also start... Uh, putting digital media into something more permanent like paper, ink on paper, uh, a wonderful medium. Uh, the e-book movement scares me a little bit. I, I think the solution to that is that we need to have something that combines the e-book with the codex book. There's no reason why you have to have one or the other. So my question is, please comment. <laughs> I think there's a there's a um, it's a very interesting um, question. There's a there's a lot of conflation in a way uh, when people think about the digital domain because, uh, uh, in fact, the uh, 
the attributes of digital objects are very much an object here. You talk about taking old language and moving it forward <laughs> to try to characterize something that isn't an object at all, right? Um, but digital objects have characteristics that uh, vary enormously, both in terms of the software they're in, the hardware you need to run on them, the, uh, the proprietariness of whether it's open access or proprietary software, or um, you know, there's a huge difference between a book that's sitting on your Kindle and a CAD file that was used to design an aircraft or whatever. Um, but because we come from a tradition so recently where everything could be reduced to um, some kind of ink on some kind of paper or silver on film or you know, however you want to think about it, but you could make it tangible in some way, we, we tend to imagine that digital objects share a set of attributes in common when, in fact, they very often don't. Um, so you have to parse the the digital uh, construct, the digital object that you're dealing with in ways that are a lot more complicated than um, the way you had to think about dealing with uh, uh, um, a photograph or a sound recording. I mean, those were tangible things, and you, maybe you needed equipment to play the vinyl, um, but in fact you knew how to do that, and it was mostly mechanical, and it wasn't a function of a sequence of bits in an algorithm that you had to understand that somebody else owned that you couldn't even get your hands on. Right? So, so it's hard when we talk about digital archiving um, because there, it, it is such a complicated uh, technical uh, problem based on where the what kind of a work it is you're trying to archive. But it's very tempting to think that there ought to be simpler answers than there are. Well, I certainly agree with what Anne said. It is a very complex process. And I guess I would add that I tend to think of these things in a, in a simple way as being creatures of one of three kinds of verbal marketplaces, that is uh, oral, textual, or electronic digital. And in current work, have called these then an oral agora, or verbal marketplace, uh, textual agora, and electronic agora. And one of the points of the Pathways Project is to encourage citizenship in multiple agorae, and therefore to gain the perspective uh, that is always conditioned by the lens of the medium that's used to examine whatever it is you're thinking about, and not to limit it parochially to uh, even to one whole agora, in which, as Anne points out, there are many different uh, possible subdivisions. They do need to be parsed. Uh, I think it's important not also not to lose track of the fact that intellectual property pay, plays an enormous complicating role in all of this because... Um, Copyright does apply to uh, uh, original works at the point they are uh, converted to a tangible medium and bits are a tangible medium. So, in fact, one of the complications archives currently confront and is part of the discussion about Section 8 and the copyright law is can you even legally make a surrogate of a work that's copyrighted in an original form, and libraries and archives are, are working very hard in Congress and in public policy arenas to try to say, 
we will lose our culture if we rely on commercial producers to maintain the long-term record, uh, the life of the author plus 70 years, a long time, and it's gone if uh, we can't figure out how to get around the constraints of a copyright law, which was essentially designed to protect entertainment media as opposed to cultural media. That, that's it. I think a lot of copyright law belongs to the textual agora, and we're trying to enforce rules that aren't very handy in the electronic uh, agora. There, for instance, oral tradition, as, as another person remarked, uh, consists largely of mashups of, of things that are already out there, um, and ownership is not possible. Now, there are certain rules within certain cultures about timing and who can say it and so forth, but over time, they're mashups. Do we have a uh, question on the right side of the auditorium? Yeah, thanks very much. My name is Jonah Boswich from Columbia University. Uh, I'm wondering if we're in danger in this conversation of slipping into a mindset where we regard access as an end in of itself, um, uh, whereby you know we kind of forget that it's the activation and the engagement around that material that, that really <laughs> ought to care. And Randy, you started talking about this um, in terms of building it before they come. But um, yeah, I'll agree it's a precondition to doing the important work, but what about the beauty of the sand mandala? And what about all the work and the effort that goes into actually deleting something instead of saving it? And could some of this general mindset have to do with willing to let go of the past and, and look towards the future? And that might sound apocryphal to historians and archivists, but, I mean, can we bring that back to the conversation as a strategy, like more case studies of what we can do with this if we had it and why we should save all of it? Well, let me just point out that you wouldn't know what a sand mandala was if somebody hadn't taken photographs of it <laughs> and written books about it. Or if I hadn't met someone that made one or made yeah, one myself. Right, but. right. Um, so it's, it's, it's complicated. And I, actually, I, um, I think that most let – me, let me separate the different um, reasons why archives uh, are, are kept, you know, for – for historians, and uh, we should let Lisa answer this, for historians, it's the discovery of the unusual objects and the relationships between them that create new ways of understanding uh, both what we do today and what people did in the past. Uh, and so there is a kind of a continuum, I think, that we, those of us who deal with archives um, imagine. I mean, the MIT archives didn't stop in 1935. The MIT archives are being written today, and we're trying to figure out how to capture them, right? So it is a moving river, and capturing as much as you can of that river for the reasons that one documents history and places and people and events uh, is important. but. But you're right in the sense that, uh, you know, we tend to worry about how to keep the stuff that we've already gotten at considerable expense and effort, uh, especially if it's in a medium that's really hard and fragile and volatile. Right? Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't understand that the work of an archives is is to capture the river as it flows and or or as much of it as you can as you're going along. Yeah, and I, I just comment uh, to one part of what you said, um, and, and this, again, sort of pretty narrowly um, from my background in producing scholarly resources, that is, as a documentary editor, which is kind of closely associated with archives, um, and that both are uh, jobs that um, 
work through selection, if you like. Um, but uh, one of the things that you do as a documentary editor when you're trying to sort of produce scholarly resources is get yourself out of the mindset that you are saving things for people to answer in the future particular questions um, and see what you're doing as instead preserving things for the future of questions that you can't even dream yet. I mean, it's the sort of open-endedness of the future um, uh, interrogator um, that, that, you know, sort of introduces the humility to the production of archives and editions. Just, I mean, and this may sound like a, a terrible, wishy-washy liberal thing to say, but there's, there's a notion that, in a sense, we can work towards equilibrium you know, when it comes to balancing acts of preservation against acts of non-preservation or preservation against access and so on. And really, it's, a, it's an accumulation of tensions, which I think are tremendously formative over time. Um, and right now, many of these tensions are being created by access versus enclosure, who can do what. Um, and many of these have incredible didactic value, the eyes on the prize story, you know, mainstreamed to many people, this notion of tension between what you can touch and what you can't touch. And I'm going to say touch is actually one of the next great moments or, or sort of uh, ex uh, enunciations of, of uh, tension that we're going to see because in the digital age, you need to be able to touch code. You don't need to just look at an object a la, you know, Microsoft Books or, or Google Print. You need to be able to actually get to the code so you can mash it up and rework it and reskin a game, whatever. And um, a lot of people don't get that yet. But, uh, but you know, it's going to be a very big deal. I might just add one thing about uh, access and, and what you brought up. Uh, it's brought to mind by the fact that UNESCO who's been involved in this for a while and is now changing its tune about how things are to be done, was involved with an African group. It's one of their masterpieces of, of oral culture. That wasn't oral at all, and it was sand drawings that, just in the same way as the Mandela's, participated uh, in reality by being destroyed. They were nonetheless made by some of the same recombinative rules as their stories were made. A very interesting kind of parallel. But what UNESCO decided was that after featuring 93 different cultures, I believe it was, over three series of events, that they were simply creating um, dead museums. And so what they're doing now is to empower people on the ground, people who are members of the culture, by giving them uh, handbooks of how to collect and how to continue to collect and how to uh, establish living archives in situ as well as, as, well as elsewhere and then to use the Internet to share some of this material around. So just as you say, then, it becomes uh, an opportunity for process and connecting rather than simply uh, something there somewhere um, unused. Do we have another question on the left side? And again, please identify yourself. Thank you. Yourself. Um, Jim Parody, uh, Program in Writing and Hymnistic Studies at MIT. Uh, I'm very interested in the concept of the user of the archive. We've been talking about the archive in sort of an abstract way, but there's a whole bestiary of different types of people who interact with archives, all the way from fan culture to high culture. There are certain archives that only a high intellectual can get access to. There are other kinds of archives uh, popularly defined that get used, and some of the people using them are tremendously uh, virtuosos on using intellectual properties and so on and so forth. So that's just one statement, and out of that, I'm wondering 
What about the education of people for using archives? Uh, Anne mentioned something about historicism, which I think is a really important part of the, the, the formula. But what other kinds of media literacies go along with archive nation? I, I think that you just asked the question that I was trying to ask at the beginning, but you actually made it make sense. So uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that we came up with any um, real answers except to affirm, uh, as you uh, intimate, that this is crucially important. Uh, one, to take a fling out at one... Um possible strategy would be to figure out positive uh, modes of reinforcement for people that are actually able to, um, to take up material that resides in these various you know, archival modalities and uh, take it and make new things out of it. Um, and that's something we've always been very interested in with the Internet Archive. We, we, we're very reuse focused. How can we reward that reuse? Um, and uh, so that people can set examples for one another above and beyond, you know, uh, simply mashing up and making another music video. I might try to answer in, in one respect that with the Pathways project that we're working on, there will be and are a great number of nodes that you can navigate among. Now, it is possible to follow a sequence of node numbers, let's say, that we have pre-programmed as seeming to make logical sense. We call these link maps. They're paths through a constellation, possible paths. Of course, you can abandon them altogether. Now, in answer to your question, when the site reaches maturity, we will also ask permission for each visitor to track what they click through and then to examine how they have encountered the material and to see what kind of sense it makes, um, what, kind of, what they've brought to it, what, how they've construed it. And in that way, then, we're asking people not only to be present, but to offer construals and to interact with the material uh, on an active basis. Do we have the question on the right? Can I, let me just say a, a, a word to Jim, because um, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not an archivist, and um, my colleagues would be deeply dismayed if I pretend to practice archivism without a license here. But... Um, but I, I do think that there are some lessons in this regard from the way scientists think about the record of science. And um, scientists uh, uh, traditionally go as far as they can on a particular thread of discovery or exploration un until, this is a gross generalization obviously, until they run into an obstacle they can't get past because the microscope isn't good enough or the analytical tools aren't good enough or whatever and the problem gets set aside and uh, over time what happens is scientists in those disciplines or related disciplines loop back when they have technology that enables them to revisit a problem that seemed once insolvable uh, and, and discover new ways of thinking about what's there and what's been done so far. And I, I think, you know, one of the challenges for, for archives is to present their resources in a manner which doesn't over-categorize them, that doesn't over, overly narrow the way they imagine they would be used so that as people who are interested in a time or place 
um, can can use the te- the power of contemporary um, digitization and technology to revisit these areas. And I think that's one of the things that concerns me. And uh, I, you know, I I, I wasn't going to talk about Google at all, but. Um, it's, it, it is it, the, one of the real potentials of the corpus of books that Google is digitizing is the possibility for data mining across those databases. And I think with, and, and that's currently not available. So I, I think if we imagine a future for archives where we could arrive at standards that made it possible to put these works in a context where you could data mine across archives, they would be so much uh, richer and deeper of a, a tool and an exploration uh, than we than we currently imagine them to be. Sir. Mary Bryson, University of British Columbia. And my question is directed to Rick, uh, but of course it could be answered by anyone. Uh, Rick, you used a construct of disintermediation from economics to enunciate a particular shift in the relationship between storage and transmission. And I think this construct is generative, partly just because I think I'm tired of the overuse of remediation. But uh, but I think that superficially it, it often suggests something like less governmentality. And I think intellectually it seems to offer a little bit of precision perhaps over remediation because it suggests a particular directionality of subtraction, the subtraction of a particular kind of mediation. But I find as soon as I try to use it, then... Any example that I come up with suggests simply that mediation is dispersed differently. And so it seems actually really crucial to think about this distinction between remediation and disintermediation. And I wonder how it is specifically that you theorize disintermediation. Um, I think the answer is that I don't theorize it adequately. But... (laughs) Um, and, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I certainly use the term colloquially, but that's not to kind of to, to, uh, to flee from your question. I think uh, when we, you know, I'll speak from personal experiences. When, when we ourselves have done what we might call, what I might call disintermediation, it's actually setting up, uh, it, it, it's setting up um, a gifting situation, which uh, is, is it's an example of the imperfect commons that we can um, achieve on a volunteer basis, but it isn't the true commons. It isn't, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's the foam that floats to the top when you still have a post-scarcity economy. And as a result, um, it's, it's kind of a contingent gift, um, and it is, it's mediated by all sorts of economic conditions that still prevail, that we don't do anything to change. And it's also uh, mediated by a, a great deal of technology. Uh, you know, when we first put films online, you needed broadband to access them. This was when broadband penetration was, you know, was, was uh, hyped at about 19% or something, but that, I think, was a lie. Uh, you know, and um, and also uh, there's an assumption you, you really need to know something to work with these materials. And, and basically, I don't think that we've you know uh, overturned any cultural hierarchies or busted through any any really thick walls. Um, on the, I, I think it's much more in terms of setting an example and doing some proof of concept work that uh, 
that uh, may help us build something that, uh, that that really allows us to 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 achieve some kind of real disintermediation down the road. I mean, as long as we don't control the backbone anyway, we're always piggybacking on somebody else's largesse when we give something away, which is to me, you know, one of the prime contradictions. Uh, hi, I'm Stuart Geiger from Georgetown University, uh, and I'm really interested in this discussion that we've been having, um, uh, or that you that you have been having about the um, the relationship between you know gen- the generational gap and the different kinds of ways in which uh, young people uh, you know use media and, and the implications of preservation. What I what I want to ask is um, the impl- and the implications for the fact that young people will have a gain a significant amount of utility from from the ephemera as ephemera. And that even kind of the, the, the motivations for performing the traditionally archive or retrospective oriented tasks are now, uh, and now in, you know, immediate and, and, and in the present. So, for example, I, I take photographs not because I want to uh, you know, record my events, and, but rather because I want to communicate to my social network where I've been for the past few days. Well, <laughs> absolutely, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this, this reminds me of a conversation I had with a, a computer scientist not too long after I came to MIT, and um, he said, oh, I don't, I don't know why we need to, to buy journals in computer science. You know, everything we do doesn't matter. What we did yesterday doesn't matter. It's only what we did today that matters. And I said, well, okay, good. I'll cancel all those subscriptions. <laughs> give, that, give that money in support of a discipline that thinks it needs a history. And um, needless to say, there was a significant amount of backpedaling at that point in time. So um, I, I, I think that something happens. And it's, MIT is about to celebrate its 150th anniversary. And if you talk to faculty who joined MIT in the 40s and who made MIT what it was during that extraordinary run-up of science and technology as an engine in the United States, um, they have no sense of the institution's history because they lived it. Like me in the 60s, right? That wasn't history. I was there. So they don't have any sense of, of MIT's history. But the students who are starting today look at an institution that's 150 years old and they want to be part of an institution that has been doing interesting research and making a difference in the world for 150 years, and the faculty are like totally befuddled as to why, why, would, you, why would you want the history of this place, right? Yeah. So there's a point in time at which you say to yourself, Oh, remember that concert? You're, never, you're right. You'll never be this old, I promise you. But you remember that concert <laughs> that we went to in 1999? And God, didn't we have a wonderful time? And who's got the photographs of that? And the answer is nobody. <laughs> because you all changed phones, and you, you, know, you, kept the, you kept the photographs on your phone, and you didn't move them forward, or you... Uh, you know, you threw the camera out, and you, or you put them on your, your laptop, and you have your three generations of laptops down from that now. And so, you know, I do think that some of this, in fact, is, is a culturally different way of thinking about something that's easy and plentiful. But there is a point at which every human individual is hardwired to want to build a personal history. And that's when some of this kicks in, or you build an institutional history. Uh, 
And I just have to think that the need to create a sense of your own um, contributions in space and time uh, is part of what drives archives and the study of history and and everything, you know, speaking of oral traditions, right? Well, um, it's just past 2 o'clock, so if we could, um, and I, for one, am desperate for some uh, food. Um, so I'd like to thank our audience for, um, I'd like to thank our audience for um, being so patient through the lunch hour. And our panelists, and, and our panelists for uh, being such good panelists and, and hardly needing me at all, so, um, and giving us an enjoyable discussion. Thank you again.